Thus, it's first and foremost important not to lose sight of the fact that humans are just part of the zoo, even though we're currently in the lucky position to be on the very top of the food chain. Which he even says in a footnote isn't even true. <laughs> Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to pick back up our parliamentary book club, working through Marcus Gabriel's tome. Would you call it like, was it really impactful when it first came out? So is it like an instant classic in contemporary philosophy, Troy? I don't know, man. I don't think there can be instant classics in contemporary <laughs> philosophy. You have to wait at least 100 years after you're dead before you can get that status. Yeah, probably. But it's called Fields of Sense, a new realist ontology. We released the introductory episode two episodes ago. And so now, uh, as we've said before, we're going to kind of painstakingly slowly work through this text. It's going to be pretty technical, and it is offering what, I, I mean, I think it's going to be offering a quite novel angle onto uh, a sort of realist interpretation of philosophy. So we're going to take our time and probably have some divergences and things like that. And uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a long haul. But um, yeah, this is, I think, really us starting the marathon more than anything, so to speak. So we're going to be talking about the first chapter uh, once we get to our main segment today. We do want to mention that if you want to support us in some tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There are several tiers of support there, and you can get access to goodies like the monthly newsletter that we send out with extra sticky leaves and extra shitty minutes, as well as the ability to vote on future patron-sponsored episodes and, of course, bonus episodes, which we make every once in a while. So go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to those. That is right, and there is a new bonus episode that is up and that is live right now, so you can go over and check that out. Obviously, patrons, you should have gotten a notification about that, and if you're not a patron and you want that, head over. We also have the poll-up right now for the next patron-sponsored episode, so if you can get to that quickly, you can get uh, your own ideas up on the uh, board. Yeah. But before we start talking about this Marcus Gabriel book, we know what we got to do first, dude. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, that's that shitty minute. Hmm. This is the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Well, um, what do you think, man? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to dive into it or not. Well, it almost feels silly for me to complain about some social media phenomenon or the fact that there are no waves right now here in <laughs> Sydney or something like that. It just seems kind of petty. Um, so I guess we got to kind of get into it maybe a little bit at least for 15 or 20 minutes. I feel like we could talk about it. Um, you know, Troy asked me if we wanted to do the Gabriel book or if we wanted to do an episode on the protests that have been emerging all throughout the United States. And then, you know, there's some solidaristic stands in other countries as well, but obviously the the kind of focal point has been throughout cities in the U.S. based on the lynching of George Floyd. Um, and I said, you know, I think we should do Gabriel just because I uh, I need, like, 
some time to not only have my mental space be dedicated to negative news or to heightened news or to um, stimulation of the negative affects more broadly. So, But it's probably important. Today is Black Tuesday in the U.S., not here in Sydney. It's Wednesday for me, but um, there's uh, an acknowledgement on social media of, you know, black culture. I think it really kind of started with uh, centralizing on the music industry of um, trying to put forward black voices in the music industry and then in entertainment more broadly. And so people on Insta blacked out um, their pages, which was, I think, a solidaristic move to try to say, like, I'm not going to just focus on my my activities as an individual creator or on my sort of... Um, individualist or maybe superficial pursuits, but aligning ourselves, raising awareness to these causes. And so people are posting links to bail funds and all kinds of other things like that, which is uh, which is an interesting thing. So that's kind of what's going on. So I just figured we should at least kind of talk a little bit about this. I, I don't really know where to start even, but it's definitely been weighing on my heart. I, sometimes I don't know what to say. Um, I have people that constantly ask me for my opinion on things and I try to respond the best I can. I did make a little video over on my YouTube channel about it. So if you follow me on my YouTube channel, you've already seen it. If you don't follow, you can go to my YouTube channel. And it's just some thoughts about some things that I've noticed about the responses to the protests, the kind of typical shit that you get from Tommy Laren and the conservatives that are like, oh, these animals are just destroying their own neighborhood and they want to sort of discredit through dehumanizing by pointing out this supposed, like, uh, ignorance of the people that they're just stupid. They don't even realize that they're destroying their own neighborhood, sort of thing. The local um, mom and pop target. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The local mom and pop police station. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's a video kind of uh, engaging in that, and then also somebody like Killer Mike, who did come out and he, you know, made a plea to people in Atlanta to to not do the same thing, to go home and mobilize and organize and things like that. So I kind of engage with how those are obviously radically different because they come from a different perspective. Um, But then, of course, I also talked about how there might be a third, more radical uh, orientation as well that actually understands that there is a rationality to protesting, to looting, to vandalism, to um, counter-violence or against the state and things like that. So you can check that out. But it's just been a lot, man. It's been a lot. How are you kind of digesting things yes yeah, similarly i mean i don't i was kind of dreading the idea of doing a whole hour or so talking about it just because i don't think i have all that much important to say um and also i'm a bit just shell-shocked at the intensity of it all just um the kind of ritual of you know looking over your twitter timeline a couple times a day um which over the last several years has become a more and more toxic ritual as it goes from funny memes and links to news stories to bitching and complaining about every single thing in the world. Um, And that slow descent into toxicity has just, I mean, become this like, it's incredible, like just staring down into the abyss Mm. when you just see video after video of people getting the shit kicked out of them, stuff on fire, people with blood gushing from their heads from rubber bullet wounds. And to know that it's happening all over the country, it's happening in my town, uh, a mile away from where I live, it's happening close to where my family is back in California, um, people that I know all across the country. Um, that's it's 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 like cliche to talk about how you know history happens so quickly or whatever, but um, 
there's a lot happening right now and it's, it's a bit much to take in and you know our podcast is named after the idea that the owl of minerva um only flies at night right so philosophy is supposed to be the thing that kind of recapitulates history after it's happened only after it's happened and we're trying to usurp that a little bit by doing it beforehand um mm. but that's that's tough man it's i get why um it's it seems it's an impossible and maybe even just arrogant task to think mm. you can encapsulate the meaning of what's happening right now um in the middle of it mm. yeah and that, that's one of the other things that i think i've i why i said I made a tweet where I said I feel ill-equipped to comment for a variety of reasons, and I think that's part of it. I think people might assume that I was making some sort of like woke left, like I'm a white boy, what can I say kind of thing, and that really is in the background. Um, It was more kind of what you're talking about, the sort of hubris of theory to feel as though, one, that we're entitled to be able to comment on everything, that we're in a position to be able to say what we feel is accurate, and then three, that there's an adequate that there's an adequate ability to be able to comment on something in the midst of it, right? And I think, weirdly, in a way, I think this actually fits with Gabrielle's project. Um, I think this fits kind of with with Mayasu's project. And kind of follow me out on this. And of course, now here I am giving theoretical weight to the thing that I said. It's difficult to give theoretical weight to, but it's the orientation, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, but no, no. But there is something about like the the rupture or the um, the contingency, radical contingency, or pure difference, or the 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 radical outside, or the thing that um, doesn't exist within the typical frame of uh, the status quo, or something along those lines, that I think that I think is really difficult to handle, right? And philosophy always tries to handle everything, right? And I think human society tries to handle things. I mean, that's one of the things that you could say about a particular reading of religious expression, right? That that it's trying to handle the chaos of nature. We don't understand. We don't know when the rains are going to come. We don't know what, uh, what when, when, the, uh, when the fucking locusts are going to destroy our crops, you know, disease is wiping out our people. So there's a way of trying to handle that through abstractions, right? Through certain religious practices that mitigate the chaos of nature or something along those lines. That's one version of it. And you see it in uh, in societal frame with the institution of laws, which are technologies of management, right? I mean, this is something you get very clearly in the work of Foucault, who sort of maybe overemphasizes this to the neglect of other elements. But um, but that yeah, that that they are technologies of management of society, of societal formation, of subjective formation of us as individuals within that society. And so there's a sense in which there's a real rush to try to manage the outside, to manage the unsayable or the unpresentable or something along those lines. And I almost feel that the more radical position, at least for what I feel is an authentic expression of kind of my own orientation to these things, is to rather attest to the moment or attest to the outside or attest to that which is unsayable. And I don't know exactly what that means, but um, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out what that means. But I do think that at least in whatever little activities that I can do, if it's making a YouTube video, um, you know, uh, answering some questions on Twitter, um, you know, you know, posting links to bail funds on Insta, um, whatever it is, there's some sort of attestation to 
the the event that is beyond my capacity or my desire or um, my tendency to try to manage. Yeah, and along with that idea of of a testament um, and attuning to certain things, you know, I don't. The idea that everyone kind of just jumps to um, basically making informing moral judgments on particular individual actions throughout the various protests, riots, looting, and what have you, um, I think is the wrong sort of mode to be in. Instead, it seems important to me to think about the fact that when when someone riots or loots or protests, they're engaging in in a sort of speech act, right? And by that, I just mean that action has an illocutionary force, right? It's an, a, a sort of form of speech that itself is not just expression, but is actually performing an act of some kind. Um, but it's not always clear on the surface what that act is, right? Because it's in a really complicated context. And it's a thing that people don't do very often. So it's not a thing we have this sort of obvious social context we can sort of um, analyze it from and, and sort of immediately know. Uh, what's going on. So I do think there's something important about kind of stepping back for a second and thinking about, you know, when someone who is powerful and who is generally an oppressor engages in quote unquote violent action, whatever it may be, whether it's against people, property or whatever, um, that happens often. So we have a pretty good idea about the illocutionary force of what that is. But when the powerless or the, you know, um, relatively powerless and the oppressed engaged in these actions. They don't happen as often. And so the force they're going to have, the sort of structure that they have, is not going to be necessarily obvious on the surface. So I don't know that I have a great handle on exactly what that force is. Um, it seems to take many different forms, whether you know it's someone who's um, looting a liquor store to you know get a case of corona, or you know, burning down a police precinct, or um, occupying and disrupting traffic on a freeway that cuts through a black neighborhood, which was built for the purposes of destroying a black neighborhood. Um, all these things, I think, have different illocutionary forces. And I think we would do well um, in the midst of you know, supporting and doing what we can to, to do what's right to think about what that force is. And I don't, again, I don't think I have a good idea what it is yet, but attuning to that and thinking about um, what that means rather than just jumping to devoid of context, what, is this thing right or wrong? Um, that seems to me like a much more mature way of thinking about these issues. Yeah, I'm always so surprised, and maybe it's just because of the way that my mind works now, but at how quick certain, it's almost like certain groups, you know, that you, you can you can anticipate precisely what they're going to say. Like, if you would have asked me what would Sean Hannity say about these, pro- I could like probably craft a tweet that would be pretty much exactly what he would say, at least in spirit, if not exactly to the letter, right? And um, I'm, I'm, it, it's just so surprising to me how cliche and how mimetic um, these responses are that really derive from a particular, I would say, misunderstanding of that illocutionary force, right? And it's, I think, ultimately like a disregard for it. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier through like you have to decredit, discredit it through dehumanizing because it just doesn't fit within your schema. Because as soon as you start to validate it as having a rational base, mm-hmm. then you have to then say that, okay, if it's rational, if it's coming from something authentic, um, something that actually reason 
is speaking through or expressing, then that means that your presuppositions that find it distasteful themselves might be wrong, right? Or at the very least, insufficient. And, um, and they can't admit that. So the immediate rush is to silence, to discredit, to dehumanize, to smack down, um, which is really, I mean, I think fits really quite well into um, the type of obsessive logic that Zizek identifies as being part and parcel of fascism, right? That um, the anxieties of the world are asking to be recognized and you smack it down and you silence it by just simply pushing it away and covering over it and um, and then sort of like outsourcing the blame or scapegoating certain people or whatever your mechanism of protection is so that you don't have to actually confront it. But that is, maybe I don't want to say that Sean Hannity is a fascist. Maybe he is. Um, but it definitely is exhibiting a fascist logic, right? And, yeah, that's, um, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And um, yeah, if, if you admit that the communicative act that uh, you want to discourage is a rational one, then you have to acknowledge it as such, right? Yeah. And you have to justify yourself in the face of it. And they don't want to do that, right? And the, you know, the classic fascist line is just to say that they're, these are animals, these are thugs, any sort of derogatory term that can sort of dehumanize, as you're saying, and then derationalize um, the act that's being done. It's just flowing from pure id. It's not actually mm. in any way even attempting to justify itself, right? Um, internally. But then the interesting, and not interesting in a good way, but interesting kind of new version of that, and you hear this especially then coming from sort of like centrist Dems and others, uh, as well as some Republicans, is that um, it's all outside agitators, right? It's all anarchists. It's all paid protesters, um, the classic Soros line, right? Mm. And But that, I think, it's, it's following from the same sort of logic, right? We mm. can't admit that the actual people who live in Minneapolis and in Chicago and Louisville and LA and otherwise um, actually have justifiable um, criticisms of the police state and of the structure of government and of how they're treated in general. We can't yeah. admit that, right? Otherwise, if we admit that the protests are in some sense like outflows of, of justified criticism, then we have to address that criticism. So we're just going to go ahead and say, no, it's just people who are paid. It's purely cynical. Right. Mm. These people are doing it for for means ends reasoning, not because they actually value something that they're they're willing to burn shit down for. Yeah. And here's a, here's an interesting just thought experiment. So if you're going to say, oh, they're building down or they're burning down their own neighborhoods. Don't you think that they think that it's not their neighborhood and that it's not their property? I mean, there's there's clearly if you want to use the language of like liberal, liberal property relations, they're probably not like self-immolating. Now, some of them might be, um, but I really, really, really doubt that many of them are. They're not self-immolating. They're not like burning down their own actual homes. They're not destroying their own individual cars. Now, then you might say, but, oh, but collectively, this is like the result of a certain set of actions. And that's one way of thinking about it, but I think you're absolutely right. That kind of falls into this like radical misunderstanding that is derationalizing, that is um, discrediting through a kind of like just immediate smacking down because they don't want to confront the reality of the situation, which is that, no, I think this is actually precisely coming from at least partly a, a recognition that, no, this is not our home, right? This is not our neighborhood, and that these actions are contestations against those power structures that are framing these neighborhoods that are um, kind of trying to mystify people into thinking that they actually are their neighborhoods. And that isn't to say that somebody like Killer Mike, and I, I talked about this in my video, that Killer Mike's um, point 
doesn't also have gravitas, which I think it does, but I think it comes from a different place because it comes from an already existing contestation within the black community to try to take back the community, right? Because that's something you've constantly heard of, to build local community organizations, to build local small businesses to support the small businesses. It comes from a desire to take back the community. The problem is that it oftentimes is framed within existing bourgeois power relations as well, right? So it's a really sticky mess to kind of navigate here. Um, but at the very least, I think we need to be willing to engage in that sticky mess, right? To engage in that difficulty, to try to work through things so that we can try to understand, like you said, what is the rationality of this elocutionary force? So I don't yeah, know. And just, to, just to cap that, I mean, just saying that there's a sort of rationality behind even the property damage um, does not mean that it's justified or good. I don't know the answer to that question. There are arguments that it right. is ultimately good. Um, and there are times in history where property damage has been used strategically to uh, gain leverage over governments and over businesses, right? There's something to the idea that if the business community turns on the cops, then that's the only real way um, to sort of loosen the stranglehold of power that cops seem to have over local governments. Um, I don't know if that's true. That's just a you know basic sort of outline of an argument that some people use. To admit that there's a rationality there just means that you need to sort of attune yourself to it, right? Not to say that it's therefore automatically justified. It's just a thing that exists. This is not just pure ed exercising itself in animalistic rage. There is a logic here and we need to understand what it is. Yeah, exactly. Or try to at least understand what it is. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And in this, I think, at the very least, affirm it first and don't be in such a quick rush to slap a moral frame onto it yeah but that's that's it's difficult to think i mean part of a, a bourgeois um orientation in the world is tied to a certain moralism right i mean this is one of the things that marx and Engels spend so much time criticizing in german ideology is like uh bourgeois rationality or morality more general but even as it exists in people like sterner and individuals and things like that that it starts from abstraction Right. This is one of the great things that you get, or great things, one of the important focus, focuses that you get in the work of like Adolf Reed too, right? Um, that there are certain ways of viewing the world that start from a kind of moralistic perspective. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't really have much else to say, but um, it's definitely, it's, it's something that, um, it seems ubiquitous right now, so it would be foolish to not at least acknowledge it before we try to get into some other stuff. Yeah, moral judgments should be the conclusions of your thinking, not the uh, starting points. All right, so should we jump into this zoontology bit? Yeah, man, let's do it. All right, so we mentioned a couple weeks ago that we're going over Marcus Gabriel's Fields of Sense for our 2020 Summer Parliamentary Book Club. And the introductory chapter that we went over was a bit of a grab bag of all the different things that Gabriel is seemingly going to address throughout the book, from 20th century materialism to um, his, his idea of meta metaphysical nihilism, which was uh, his notion that metaphysics um, literally talks about nothing, that there is no object or domain it refers to. Um, and he calls this uh, the no worldview or the view that the world does not exist. Um, so I guess we're going to get to that at some point. 
to the realism versus anti-realism debate, to talk about epistemological pluralism, which I know I mentioned I was pretty excited about, even though I don't like epistemology very much, mm-hmm. um, to psychoanalysis, to this cool term that I know Austin likes, anarchical realism, mm. um, all sorts of stuff. So it was a bit of a grab bag um, and didn't go in depth into anything, but I imagine that's a good frame of reference to have as we jump into individual chapters here, which will um, presumably stake out a theses on each of these domains and more as well. And the first one we're addressing is this idea of zoontology, which is a pretty cool uh, little portmanteau there. Did he come up with that? Do you know? No, I've seen it before. Um, and uh, I like, yeah, I, I don't know if it like derives from stuff that he's said, but no, I've, I've seen it used before. I just don't know how common it is. What's better, zoontology as a portmanteau or hauntology? A hauntology, for sure, bro. <laughs> Hauntology's badass, man. Hauntology is both a great term and the most ridiculous version of a neologism that a philosopher has ever come up with, I think. I'm so into it, and I'm theoretically <laughs> into it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking love Derrida, man. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you want to jump into this? It's a really short chapter. It's only, what, like eight pages? Uh, oh, like ten pages, yeah. Ten pages? Oh, I, I was just looking because my bookmark was on the eight pages away from the end. Yeah, it's ten pages. Um, and uh, so it's really interesting because he starts off this chapter with this thought experiment and then starts talking about individuals and then doesn't mention individuals at all for the rest of the chapter until the very end. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit. I was wondering how that first opening couple of pages had anything to do with the main debate that he's talking about in the rest of the chapter between zoontological optimism and zoontological pessimism. And that thought experiment was weird, man. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, so have you? I, here's the thing: he's kind of a funny dude. Like, like when you think of German comedy. You don't really think of it as being like witty or biting or sarcastic. I kind of think of it at least as being a little bit goofy. And I don't know why, but he totally, especially like if you watch his TED talk that he does where he talks about how, why the world does not exist, but unicorns do or whatever it is, you kind of get a little bit of, I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe his presentation and his affect, but it's kind of like he's, it's almost like he's got rosy cheeks You know, like he doesn't, but I picture him as being this really smart, obviously he's going to be a little bit nerdy because he's, he's very intelligent and he's accomplished in the world of academia, which requires quite a bit of nerdiness to be able to get there. So there's a little bit of nerdiness, but at the same time, he's also got a charm about him and he's very personable. Um, But nevertheless, cut through all of that, there's like this, like, like this slapsticky element to him. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, I do wonder, and you know, some of the references to like popular culture and stuff are sometimes, you know, uh, helpful and sometimes just totally fall flat. Like the Louis C.K. was, I think, really a bad reference, actually. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> part of that's just got to be the fact that he couldn't have known what would happen to Louis C.K. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I didn't even mean that culturally. I just mean in terms of it being like a clarification or anything. I was kind of like, eh. 
Nah, that's not the best example. <laughs> yeah, they're not always clarificatory, that's for sure. Yeah. I do wonder also how much of the kind of weirdness comes from the fact that I'm pretty sure, you know, he's a, you know, German philosopher, but he speaks several languages and he speaks English very well. Um, I'm pretty sure he wrote this book both in German and in English, right? Oh, so, so he do you think... Oh. He basically translated it for himself, I think. Interesting. So I do wonder if part of the weirdness just comes from the fact that a trained um, translator would be able to sort of understand mm. English English language philosophy and the forms and etiquette of it, right? Mm. Um, the formal aspects of it in a way that maybe um, he's sort of interpreting it through German ones. I don't know. Obviously, he's very, very familiar with uh, English language philosophy. So I'm sure he, he knows those forms better than um, most you know, English language philosophers. But uh, I do wonder a bit of some of the weirdness of the writing style comes from that. Yeah, maybe I did find this chapter to be a little bit stilted in writing style, which I don't remember feeling when I was reading the introduction. Did that happen for you at all with this chapter? Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, parts at least, especially the, the beginning. I think by the uh, the last two thirds of it, I, I was super engaged and really interested in the argument. But yeah, th- those first couple of pages were a little bit stilted and a little bit hard to follow exactly what his line of thinking was. Okay, well, so let's get into exactly how he... I mean, it's only 10 pages. There's a lot of meat here, but I think we can pretty much cover this just by going um, kind of sequentially. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. I just have a bunch of quotes here. I think we can kind of read over and then um, pontificate on a bit. Okay. So first things first, he gives this thought experiment, and it's a very strange thought experiment, um, basically about how there's this utterly strange object that you encounter and it changes shape and changes form and it alters and so the the scene in front of you changes but that also changes your thoughts in thinking about the object, right? Um, and so basically what the conclusion of this is that he's saying nothing in your stream of consciousness, your progression of articulated thoughts or in the scene of your visual field comes with any clue regarding the definite identity of any individual, right? That's his kind of... Um, conclusion to using a thought experiment. He wants to say that there is no definite clue or no clear clue of a definite identity of any individual. Now, I thought, I was thinking here immediately about Descartes and Descartes' investigation into um, the sufficiency or insufficiency of the senses, right? And when you're reading, for example, the meditations, there's the bit about um, and I can't remember the exact example that Descartes uses, but it's like, you know, you see something in the distance and you start approaching it or whatever, and then it turns into something. You see that it's something else. You might think that it's a fucking snake or something like that, and then you get up to it and you realize it's a stick. And then Descartes kind of using similar arguments throughout what he's talking about, you know, the sh- sh- uh, shifting shape of the wax and all this stuff to basically say that, see, our senses aren't the uh, uh, the clear foundation upon which we can build a a rational system because they fool us. They trick us sometimes. And I was kind of thinking about that here. I was thinking, okay, it seems like he's kind of doing something similar here. He's using some sort of, he's, he's embedding himself. He's situating himself already within um, a philosophical tradition. That's immediately what my thought was. Yeah, certainly. I think he's doing that by starting off with a Cartesian style um, thought experiment like that. I think the yeah. issue I have with it is, and in general with thought experiments of this kind, you know, Descartes works so well because it begins his argument, right? And then he makes an argument based upon it. And those thought, thought experiments basically 
elicit the same intuitions in almost everybody who hears it. That's why everybody learns or reads the meditations in philosophy 101 pretty much, right? To yeah, and why everyone, about, at least for a minute, is a Cartesian. <laughs> yeah, every, you have to go through Cartesianism um, to yeah. eventually get out of it, right? Uh, that's what's brilliant about it. And the best thought experiments are ones that sort of bring out those intuitions in you so you can then start thinking about how to judge them properly. Whereas this one just left me confused. Like, I don't know what my intuitions are about this object that doesn't exist that I've never experienced. And I don't even really understand from the description of what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> how am I supposed to get an intuition about that? It kind of reminds me of like, you know how Hume um, in the inquiry has this uh, thought experiment where he's like, imagine a color between this shade of blue and that shade of blue. Can you imagine it? And it's like, no, no. <laughs> What does that even mean? Like, I don't yeah. have any intuition about that. Like, help help me, dude. <laughs> Can you talk about something more concrete? Yeah. Yeah, like maybe right now imagining a shade of blue between those two shades, but I don't even know if I could tell if I was. <laughs> so mm. it just leaves you kind of confounded. And that's why, I mean, I think the commentary on that thought experiment from Hume is just all over the place because no one really has the same intuitions about it. Mm. Um, so it kind of left me in a similar place. And I don't think it was really all that material to his argument. Uh Anyway, when it comes no, to I mean, okay, yeah, the conclusion then is the following sentence where I just left off before, and he says, there are only absolute processes, processes without anything being processed, mere becomings, not becomings of anything, but just becomings, change without anything changing. And then he says, we always experience substances rather than pure processes. And uh, the reason is he says that the term individual is introduced in order to account for the fact that we are not in a situation of radical change or pure processes. So I think this is really important. What do you have to think about this? Yeah, my thought was just he's sort of staking out his thesis statement here, and then he's going to come back around to it eventually, because obviously that's a huge claim, and he doesn't go really any way towards justifying it here. So, yeah, I think at some point we're going to sort of see why he wants to stake out this claim about substances and individuals against pure um, processes in the beginning. He doesn't make it clear that he's doing that, I don't think, but um, I imagine having a charitable reading of it, that would be the case. Yeah, and I think it's really important, too, that he says that there are only absolute processes And then he says, processes without anything being processed. This is making me think of, you know, like uh, philosophies of becoming, but more importantly, the differential philosophy of Deleuze. And the reason this is important, I think most people think of flux or they think of becoming or they think of process as being a change between individuals, right? Between individual states or events between these two objects that are already pre-constituted, right? Um, whereas he's getting at something much more maybe speculative, much more dispersed, we might say, much more individual rather than individual, and it's that prior set of conditions that processes exist um, outside of, before, um, beyond, or whatever, if you will, any sort of uh, experience of individuals, but we never actually experience pure process. There's always this sense in which we experience that which has already been individuated. But nevertheless, there's still this persistence, or maybe we would say insistence, of process, of absolute process itself, which I think is really important 
ontologically, because it obviously fits a lot within my work and my interests on Sartre, who is a thinker of becoming, Deleuze, who's a thinker of process. So I think that's really important here. Yeah, so just to be clear here, the the quote that you're um, using where he says there are only absolute processes, processes without anything being processed, that's um, his conclusion about what would be the case if we had this rapidly changing, not really object, right? And then he's going after that and saying, he seems to say after that, that his claim that we always experience substances rather than pure processes, uh, and there are no pure processes, if we mean this something that someone could possibly refer to. It seems like he's kind of saying, if the world was like that first thing, then we would only experience processes, but we don't. Is that not how you interpreted it? Um, uh, so he's saying nothing is in your stream of consciousness. Your progression of articulated thoughts or in the senior individual field comes with any clue regarding the definite identity of any individual. There are only absolute processes. Process, um, so here's the thing, though. I, I I don't know because he does – he is obviously a thinker of uh, the individual. But I think what he's kind of saying is, is that within this thought experiment of there just being processes, that that's a world that – like, this is what I wonder, maybe. Maybe this is me then kind of, like, wishfully thinking. Um, that, that that would be a situation of just absolute pure process that we would never have access to and you could only ever speculatively think about it. Because he says, we always experience substances rather than pure processes. But he's not saying that pure process can't speculatively exist. He says, there really are no pure processes if we mean by this something we could possibly refer to. Right, So it's about being able to reference it and access process as process. And the point being is is the way that we access reality is via the individuation of reality. We only ever encounter individual things, right? But that doesn't say anything ontologically about the status of pure process, right? It still might speculatively be there. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, I do wonder if there's kind of a Kantian argument in the background here, especially in that comment about uh, if we mean pure processes as things that we could possibly refer to, meaning something like the conditions of possibility of experience uh, are such that there have to only be individuals. Uh, if there were only pure processes, we would not have experience or something like that. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, experience derives from individuation. Yeah, so, and I think he's going to have more than just that, more than just these sort of... Um, transcendental arguments, or at least hints at transcendental arguments for the status of individuals. But he kind of moves beyond it a bit, and I imagine he'll get back to it at some point, since that's a, obviously a um, very important uh, debate in especially European philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he goes on and he says, then at this stage of the argument, it's sufficient to understand individuals as satisfactorily determined objects. I thought that was kind of just an important... This is how he defines an individual. It is a satisfactorily... That means there's some sort of like sufficient... It's meeting some sort of set of demands. It's functional <laughs> and then it's, in some way, yeah. And it's a determined object. So here, this is again very sort of, I think, Kantian Hegelian. He's talking about the determinant conditions for the gen the genesis of objects, right? There has to be some sort of satisfactorily... Um, uh, satisfactory set of conditions, determinant conditions that uh, objectify uh, an object, that, that individuate an object, right? But the degree of explicit, explicit individuation 
and therefore of satisfactory determination for many individuals, it varies relatively to the interest invested in the individual. And he talks about how a subway, subway line in New York, for example, is more satisfactorily determined, whereas a Sunday timetable of a bus in a small village is less satisfactorily determined. This is a very Latorian actor network theory kind of argument, that things have quote-unquote reality, or what he might say individuality, um, to a greater degree based on the relations of power, or as he puts it, um, based on the interest invested into that particular element. I took this as kind of his gloss on the sort of Heideggerian point that he keeps bringing up, right? Um, about mm. ontology, ontology as the sort of restricted focus on, he calls it interest relative um, features or something of, of objects. So, you know, Heidegger obviously is focusing on how the world is sort of um, shows itself to, or sort of what's the word that Heidegger uses, the verb that he uses for the way the world displays itself or whatever to Dasein. I can't remember the verb. Mm. Um, but that's sort of the interest relative point that's I think being talked about here a bit. I'm not really uh, grasping the Latourian point because I don't I haven't read Latour in forever. Um, but do you think that's that's the case? The sort of just the sort of docile focus, the um, subjective focus of how objects um, individuate. Yeah, I think that's probably why the word interest is used because it seems to fit with the word kara, right, or care, or concern mm -hmm. in Heidegger. Sorge, yeah. Yeah, Sorge, exactly. Which he does actually refer to, I think, explicitly. He, he talks about Heidegger and Sorge, you know, if not the next page, a couple pages later. So yeah. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Interest here has to do with concern, attunement. So there's some sort of um, individuation uh, is understood based on satisfactorily determined objects insofar as uh, the interest invested in them is to a greater degree or lesser degree. Yeah. And so you can kind of see this as going down that um, subjectivity focused yeah. um, continental philosophy uh, style, um, maybe you'll call it postmodernism, whatever, right? Um, but constructivism? Sort of constructivism? Constructivism, yeah, broadly yeah. speaking. Um, although constructivism doesn't necessarily entail that there is um, some like pre-theoretical uh, thing that is being constructed like you can go either way on that question right um, it, well it is interesting because he does kind of say in the is it in the introduction where he says maybe postmodernism never really happened except for maybe he talks about rory but he's like maybe it was just an invention of uh, of american academia um yeah, so I, I think he's right about that me too me too 100 <laughs> percent. and he even i think he, this book is even like a sort of side theme of the book seems to be um defending everything post-Kant in the German philosophical literature from mm. the accusation that it led towards postmodernism, right? Mm. He even defends Heidegger and is like, that, that interpretation of Heidegger that he's um, uh, he's only concerned with the interest relative uh, side of ontology is itself wrong. He was primarily focused with that part of ontology, right? But he didn't, that wasn't uh, the restriction on ontology. He didn't say ontology or like metaphysics was only that. Mm. Mm. Okay, so yeah, let's keep going here, right? Yeah, the interest relative versus interest independent. Yeah, so if interest relative is just the um, the way that an object is constructed by, um, or in some sense related to our interest in it, there's also the interest independent side, um, which is what the object is um, in a sense in itself. Mm. I'm trying to think, do you have a passage where he actually has that? 
Yeah, well, so um, where he talks about act, yeah, okay, so this is the weird thing though. So then he says, in order for there to be individuals, even in this interest relative sense, some interest independent conditions have to be met. So this is what he's saying. Now this is a, an interesting supposition that I think he will try to defend later, but he doesn't really defend it now. He just kind of like posits it, and he says, in order for there to be individuals, so this is factual. In order for that to be the case. Even in this interest relative sense that he's just been talking about, even in the sense that things are individuated relative to the interest invested in them, right? In order for that to be the case, there must be some interest independent conditions that are met, right? That's what I thought is an interesting claim. Is that him trying to say, so the first one is, okay, you got the constructivists on one side, then now there has to be some sort of quote-unquote realism. There have to be some real conditions for experience, for this interest relative orientation. There have to be some real conditions that are met in order for that to take place. Is this not a very sort of like, he's automatically setting this up as a transcendental argument? Yeah, it's certainly set up that way here. Although for him, you know, for Kant, the transcendental is sort of, I mean, there's different interpretations of this, so I don't want to go down that road, but the transcendental is separated from the empirical um, pretty strongly, right? But he's saying here, um, those conditions are physical. Some of them are physical or neurobiological. Some of them are historical. Some of them are social. Hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of sort of empirically uh, laden uh, conditions as well that are involved here. So he's, he's making a much, um, I would imagine, much more contemporary argument than Kant. But yeah, it has that same structure of the transcendental argument. Yeah. Well, the reason I mention that is because I find it so interesting that, you know, there's a way to either work through transcendentalism or you can kind of just circumvent it and go before it and go like Spinoza, Leibniz, you know, dogmatic rationalism. You could do kind of like analytic stuff that don't really take consoporia as seriously, but rather try to circumvent around them. But I think he's taking the kind of Kantian aporia seriously. I think that's why it's important to think of it in that framework. Not that he establishes the relationship between phenomena and noumena exactly in the same way, or um, the relationship between the transcendental categories and experimental, or the, the transcendental conditions and the uh, empirical um, empirical manifold uh, in the same way. But nevertheless, I think it's important because it sets up what he's doing and how he's radicalizing it, maybe in a similar way to someone like Mayasu, who he does reference in this chapter, you know? Yeah, both have very strongly... Uh, Kantian structure, even when Mayasu especially is critiquing uh, the Kantian tradition. Yeah. Or and then of course, the Hegel. Tradition. And then of course, Hegel, right? Who you love the idea, and I think it's right that Hegel is just like working through Kant, right? Yeah, the closer you hew Hegel to Kant, it seems to make more sense to me, at least. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Yeah, um, yeah and it just, that's just to say, you know, German philosophers doing transcendental arguments is like Jordan shooting fadeaways. So we should expect <laughs> that. It's a formal necessity, if nothing else. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then, and then he starts talking about zoontology here. So this is where I thought the, the shift would felt really weird to me, right? Yeah. Like he's talking about interest relative and interest independent. He's talking about individuality. He's talking about processes. I'm like, okay, cool, man. I'm with you. And then he's like, oh, there are these like biological, neurobiological, physical. Um, there are these uh, uh, epistemological conditions that, uh, that we ourselves are interest-independent individuals to the extent that we belong to a species. We're carving things up. I'm like, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden, zoontology generally is the ontology of life. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's not a paragraph change or something like that, but it's part of the same paragraph. Maybe that's why it was confusing. 
There should be a, a, a space between paragraphs here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a section marker or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, there's a there's a segue here. The right, which is the interest relative of an interest independent. He's going to make these claims about two different forms of zoontology, the optimistic and the pessimistic versions. And what they do is they sort of focus on either the interest relative or the interest independent status of objects exclusively, right? Mm. Whereas his point's going to be there's some sort of combination of the two or maybe dialectical relationship between the two. Um, we'll see how he actually fleshes it out. But he's going to sort of set these these two options up as both being failures. Mm. Well, but there are three traps that he notes, right? There are three traps to to one of them, though, I think was the idea. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's so... Two basic ways of failing to understand the interest-independent, interest-relative status of objects. Okay. Um, and then for people that are listening, the word zoontology, it derives from the word, the Greek word zoe, which is one of the ways uh, that life has been understood in the Greek language. There's obviously bios as well. Um, but zoe is what he focuses on here. Interesting that like in the Bible, in Koine Greek, zoe is the word that is used for eternal life, which is... Mm -hmm interesting um which is i think different than it's oftentimes used in like classical greek but it is kind of just interesting to think about this word as having a greater sort of significance than just like like bare life or biological life that there's something more maybe socially invested in it there's something more there's something different about the word zoe yeah he's going to define them um in a bit here as he's using bios and zoe differently with zoe being a, a sort of species um or at least a uh, more complex or developmental form of bios. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. So you've got these traps. So zoontology is the ontology of life. He says, and it contains considerations regarding what has to happen, uh, what has to have happened, in order for there to be knowers of the kind we are most interested in, namely ourselves. So this is what zoontology is for him. It is. Um, uh, concerned primarily with what has had to have happened in order for there to be knowers. So in other words, what are the conditions, like the genetic conditions that have allowed for there to be knowers who are in the world? This is that Heideggerian concern, right, that uh, is concerned with revealing being and then, of course, the meaning of being, right, which then he says that Dasein is uniquely positioned to be able to do that. No? Yeah, again, recapitulating your point that um, in order for the interest relative aspects of, say, Heideggerian ontology to be the case or to be understood, to understand the meaning of being or whatever, there have to be some interest independent conditions met. Again, that transcendental argument. Okay. So do you want to talk about the, th the three traps that he goes into? Yeah. So I didn't summarize it, all three of them. I just have the zoontological optimism and pessimism. So jump in and point out the traps if you see them. We're actually at yeah. a page open here. So we're on page 34 for anyone who might be following yeah. along. So he says, zoontology comes with a number of traps to be avoided. The first trap is that we might overestimate our position as special knowers in our planet zoo. So that's the um, sort of potentially Heideggerian or post-Heideggerian mistake, although he doesn't think Heidegger himself necessarily made this mistake wholesale, although maybe he overemphasized. I, um, I definitely think it's it's post-Heideggerian existentialism is 100% can be criticized within that first trap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And by, by overestimating our position as special knowers, I think what he's basically just saying there is saying that there's sort of no connection between 
the uh, knowers in the zoo and the non-knowers in the zoo, right? Mm. So between sort of mere animals and then human beings who have this, they're called docile, they're separated from the rest of the zoo, the rest of the um, animals that exist, living things that exist. And there's no sort of connection there. There's something special about them. And really that means ontology will only be focused with the thing, the, the existing thing that is the, the human being. Mm. Um, and so he wants to get away from that sort of one trap that you can fall into by over uh, emphasizing the uniqueness of human beings as no worse. Mm. Yeah, and he yeah. even points out here, this has led people to almost just assume that nothing else in the animal kingdom knows things, <laughs> right? Which I think is wrong also. Um, I think we, we do overestimate that. And there's, I think, probably good evidence that at the very least, many animals are rational. Um, I'm not sure about knowledge because I don't even know what knowledge is in the first place <laughs> to know if we have it, let alone if uh, other animals have it. Um, but uh, beliefs and thoughts, and I think definitely many animals have that. So um, that's a good point to to show that even in, I think in sort of the Anglo-American sphere, um, the assumption is generally that you have to prove that uh, other animals have thoughts and beliefs rather than thinking, well, we're animals and they're animals and we're not that that much different than them. So we should probably look for the evidence that they have thoughts and beliefs rather than just assuming they don't until we have some sort of absolute proof. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So again, like a methodological point there that I think is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second trap then is what he calls zoontological optimism. And he says, by this I mean... Uh, the wrong kind of emphasis on zoontology, which leads to thinking that ontology is generally somehow constrained or governed by features of human development or rationality, a position wrongly attributed to Hegel. Um, he says, in this light, zoontology can lead to a kind of anti-realism, according to which the existence of the world is interpreted as depending on our existence. Um, and then here says a, a position wrongly attributed to Heidegger on the ground that he understands the world through the way things appear to human beings. So, yeah, if I can jump in too, this is also oftentimes yeah. attributed to Sartre. In Sartre, when he makes his distinction between the for itself and the in itself, and how the in itself is just brute matter, he says the in itself is, it is what it is, and it is in itself, and that uh, the for itself is the project that invests the in itself with meaning, that carves it up into reality, but the in itself, in itself, um, is just kind of just that brute matter. And so there is an interpretation of Sartre that kind of goes into this trap, but I think it's, I, I think obviously, as with most things, there are elements where yeah i think you can fault sartre for that but then there are other elements where i think and this is also with heidegger there are elements where you could say okay there's there's something more going on in what he was doing but yeah go ahead yeah do you think that maybe the first trap is a little bit more prevalent in um like anglo-american philosophy and the second trap is more about european existentialism and stuff like that they're just kind of two versions of a similar a similar trap can you say it's more sort of like yeah. In the sense that they're, they're both elevating human subjectivity to some special place that it doesn't actually occupy and sort of uh, sort of obscuring the commonalities that, that human beings have with other animals to focus only on the uh, unique capacities. Hmm. Uh, the first trap, the special knowers, right? Focusing on knowledge as being the thing that's that's uh, prevalent or, or most unique about human beings seems to be more of the focus on epistemology that occurs in Anglo-American philosophy. Whereas the second trap, the um, the sort of anti-realism angles probably more of a european thing interesting maybe yeah 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 maybe yeah i don't know if he has that in mind but that that was just jumping off the page for me a bit mm. so do you have that third trap in front of you the, the zoontological pessimism yeah and then the third trap is zoontological pessimism that is the view that our interests and their relation to our interest independent belonging 
to nature do not really matter in ontology. Right. So this is sort of the, um, we've called it by various names, scientism, reductive physicalism, physicsalism is my favorite one because it's very difficult to say and you can't read it on a page straightforwardly. Um, all basically versions of saying the sort of the opposite of the ontological optimism side, right? Not that human beings were some sense unique or special or the world is constructed in some very strong, uh, maybe even determined way by human subjectivity, but instead the opposite. Sort of human subjectivity is, is completely either illusory or unnecessary or in, in no way uh, relevant to understanding the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He calls it scientific naturalism, and I love this. He says that it amounts to a metaphysical position, right? The claim exactly. is, on the surface, the claim is is that, ah, oh, this is just all empirical, we're just doing the right thing. He says, no, 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 but there's a metaphysical turn here or a metaphysical supposition that goes beyond just scientific naturalism, which he's not, obviously, discrediting. Yeah, and I've made this point before, but I think it's absolutely true. Physicalism. Yeah, it's important to not... Uh, identify this with science because science and if you do define it or sort of identify it with science you're obscuring 99% of all science that's ever existed right science incorporates everything from um, even today in this sort of academy it incorporates things from uh, sociology and biology and psychology and so on and so forth all different uh, disciplines which are not deterministic um, and are not necessarily atomistic and certainly are not reductive towards physics and so, and even physicists don't have to think that physics is sort of the king of all the sciences and everything else has to be reduced to it for full understanding, right? Um, only a special kind of, of hubris would say that uh, physics is ultimately the only kind of thing that exists. Um, and so that you, you've got to call that by some other name than science, whether it's scientism, scientistic naturalism, physicalism, physics, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. Yeah, he's he's not shitting on the person in the laboratory that's using empirical data to like replicate a study or something like that. He's not saying, ah, that's fucked up. That's zoontological pessimism. No, no. He's saying that there's a metaphysical statement that goes further that basically says that what really matters is how things would have been had we never come into existence. Now, here's what I was thinking. I was thinking Ray Brassier here. He even mentions Brassier in a footnote later. Oh, does he? I missed it. Okay. Um, yeah, I hate fucking endnotes. I don't check them as often. I want footnotes. I know it sucks. Why would Fuck, anybody man. do that? Yeah, in philosophy, <laughs> man. Give me footnotes, dude. Because you, if you're especially if you're going to make these sustained arguments against like other people, which is where so much of the debate takes place, give me a fucking footnote, please. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking Brassier here. Um, I sent you a photo of a, a text that I just actually read yesterday um, by Paul Ennis, who wrote a book called Continental Realism, and talks about Brassier. And there's this long quote about Brassier, who Brassier wants to herald the cold universe, the universe that trillions and trillions of years from now is just going to completely radically disperse. And it's this really bleak picture he paints of how we need to actually incorporate that into our understanding of the world, because that's the really real, I guess, is, is a way that we could think about it. The really real is just this radical nihilism. Right. Yeah, and there's a good point there, right? I mean, Mayasu even talks about the ancestral as the thing that exists before there is even any sort of knowledge or human subjectivity or anything like that, or even experience. Uh, there's an important point there in the sense that we should, if we're sort of obscuring that fact, then we've we, we've fallen into the optimism, right? Uh, the unjustified optimism. But to say that's the really real is just to sort of reverse course all the way to the other side of the problem, right? Right. 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 So, um, 
then he goes on and he says, okay, so those are the traps. Um, and then, and then what? So he says, thus, it's first and foremost important not to lose sight of the fact that humans are just part of the zoo, even though we're currently in the lucky position to be on the very top of the food chain, right? And then, which he even he, says in a footnote, isn't even true. Yeah, I was, I was, <laughs> I you know what? I was, I literally wrote that in, I, I wrote that in my margin. So fucking, yeah. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta start paying attention more to these footnotes. Yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, is that even really actually true? Uh, but I think rhetorically, we get it, right? Yeah, there's something unique about human beings, but. I mean, I think it's he actually puts it, I think, very clearly and very well in saying um, the sort of designation of human beings as a rational animal. Um, you can either focus on just the rational part of that, which is the optimism, or just on the animal part of that, which is the pessimism. The point is that it's both. Mm. And this is where he brings up his distinction between um, bios and zoe, where bios is sort of bare life or just living thing, right? Which we are. Right, we are a living thing. We are animals, just like other animals are. We have share lots and lots of capacities um, with them, but we're also he's his version of Zoe, which he designates as rational animals, which move themselves by having a conception of what they are doing. Uh, there's a lot going on in that definition um, that can be talked about, but I think the basic point he's only getting at here is that in order to avoid both zoological pessimism and optimism, these these traps. Um, that are involved in those um, positions, we have to consider both the rational and the animal side of human beings, which would then allow us to understand that the world um, is both, has like an interest relative status in the sense that it's constructed or in some way revealed by our interests in it, but then also interest independent. Um, It's independent of us, it exists before us and outside of us, and it will exist before and after us. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is really, it's really interesting that he appeals to Hegel when he's talking about this because the way that he interprets Hegel here probably would spin a lot of people's heads, right? He says um, that uh, the famous movement of the concept, quote, ultimately boils down to the idea that inference patterns are valid because they correspond to how things really are, which is not how people would write a sentence about (laughs) Hegel. Yeah, there's there's some strong... I mean, I, I don't know these figures super well, but the Pittsburgh Hegelians, um, Robert Brandom and John McDowell and others, um, who were sort of taking analytic philosophy and naturalism in a way that they that sort of reinterprets Hegel. Um, I wonder if there's some influence there because there's some there's some analytic philosophy language going on in his mm. designation of the concept there. Mm, yeah, but we'll see. I'm sure he'll get into talking about um, that later for sure. Okay. So, okay, so where do we go next here? Do we want to... Well, here's yeah. the, the quote I wanted to talk to you about, because I think it was my favorite one that's that's so loaded, and I'm wondering what's going to happen with it. Okay. After his distinction between Bios and Zoe, where Zoe is the rational animals which move themselves by having a conception of what they are doing, he makes the claim that thought has the form of life itself, life of Zoe. Thought has that same form. He says, we are able to formulate the laws of nature in formal languages Precisely because they are apt to being thus described, which I think is parallel there to the what page is this Hegelian concept? Um, I don't know. Oh, I got it. I found it. It's on thirty-six. Oh, it? Yeah, it's on thirty-six. So he says, uh, most prominently, Hegel has turned this basic Platonic claim. Um, it's at the top. Uh, 
Okay, so yeah, so he's talking about Bios and Zoe, whose fundamental ontological significance derives from the idea that rational animals can move themselves by having a conception of what they're doing. He says that this is a Platonic claim, um, or Plato and uh, Neoplatonic tradition that he says that culminates in Hegel, um, this idea that... Uh, uh, that uh, I'm sorry, that the, the rational animal can move themselves. And then he says, most prominently, Hegel has turned this basic platonic claim into the notion that fully-fledged thinkers who are able to describe thought processes as governed by the norm of truth or by the laws of being true observe the fact that thought itself has the form of life in this sense. So thought has the form of life. And this is where he then... The next sentence is, this is where he talks about the famous movement of the concept. It boils down to the idea that inference patterns are valid because they correspond to how things really are. And then this is the next sentence that I think this is the punchline. We do not project inferential relations onto an inferentially blank reality as if things existed unrelated prior to the additional existence of our conceptual nets that we throw over them. This is that idea that we don't just simply... Um, project our inferences onto a blank reality which adds existence to that blank reality but rather and then this is a couple sentences later he says life for hegel is nothing more than an anti-skeptical commitment to the validity of our most successful inferentially explicit theories and this ultimately all, all goes back to his reading of Hegel as Hegel being a realist. And I've heard him say this before, that uh, it's not German idealism, but German realism. Um, I heard mm -hmm. him say that in, in a talk. Um, and this goes to this idea then that there's a sense in which inference patterns correspond to how things really are. There's a sense in which there is some sort of co-relativity, we might say. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I think, and he even distances himself in the end of that paragraph from the notion that this is just like uh, thought reduced to biology, which he says is a wild claim um, to the effect that some metaphysical necessity, there are teleological laws driving the universe from quantum fluctuations to humanoid incorporation. So he's against this sort of like scientific naturalism way of making this point, which is that whatever we call thought, it's just like um, a Turing machine, right? Which mm. we can sort of um, reduce to sort of um, functional operations. Of physical objects and that's it so hegel is not skeptical it's it's not that it's anti-skeptical it's the skeptical commitment this idea that like that from that you get from like humane empiricism right um mm -hmm. which is that you can't kind of ultimately match things up then you get the kind of kantian idea that's trying to work through that well it, how is it that we can describe the manifold how can we describe that brute world of reality um and then obviously for kant it turns into this kind of like subjective transcendental subject that orders the world or that at least has these preconditions that allow the possibility for ordering the world that then matches on to um the manifold so then that kind of overcomes the human skepticism and he's saying that life for hegel is basically just an anti-skeptical commitment because we don't need to go the kantian route but actually there is a validity to are inferential theories because they actually correspond to how things really are. There's not some sort of like um, incommensurability between the manifold of sense data and then human consciousness. So you don't fall into like the skepticism that derives from empiricism, and that you also don't fall into like the idealism, the uh, one of the zoontological traps that you get in Kantianism. But rather that there is this sort of correspondence between, let's say, inferential patterns and um, the, the substance of things. 
Yeah, the, the point is, you know, in order to fall into that empiricist skepticism, you have to create this radical binary between whatever experience and consciousness is and the really real, right? Which is already making the mistake in the first place, right? We have to understand how it is that consciousness and experience and subjectivity and all these things that seem to be unique to human beings, maybe they're not unique to human beings, but at least we do have them. Um, how those things are really real, while also biology is really real, right? Mm. Um, and if you do consider that, then there's going to be some connection between inferential patterns and like biological life or sort of natural life or whatever, right? It may not be, I don't think he's saying that, oh, correspondence is theory is true or something like that, right? That's a very, very um, narrowed claim from what he's claiming. His, his claims may be sort of more broad than that, I would think, right? There's some connect, there has to be some connection between our inferential patterns and reality um, or the rest of reality, we should say, because both things are a part of reality. Well, I think when he uses correspondence, it's probably better to use the word like co-relational, right? Because I think the correspondence theory of the truth prioritizes the objective reality of the world that we have to submit ourselves to, that we have to mm -hmm. fit ourselves into. So it's falling in. binary still too, yeah. Yeah, it's still binary. And I think that's that zoontological pessimism, right? It ultimately kind of, at least it kind of leans in that direction, that there is a priority of the world and our responsibility as knowers is to kind of get out of our own ways, demystify our illusions, and just accept the statement of the world. And then we can say that we've said a true fact. Yeah, I think that he's sort of, making a regulative point ultimately that in any of our metaphysical and ontological claims we need to make sure that we're not saying only what is quote-unquote natural is real um and also not to claim that only what is quote-unquote subjective is real right we yeah. have to be able to say that both are real and that there's some relation between the two and if we're obscuring that fact then we're making one of these mistakes or falling into one of these traps yeah, and then, of course, now to use the word again that might be a little bit confusing if you're thinking about correspondence theory of the truth, and it, here's the thing that's weird. It's not just that they're co-relational in some sort of arbitrary or abstract sense, but they correspond, right? So our inference patterns, they actually are somehow constitutively related to how things really are. I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how strong that claim is. Uh, I'm sure he'll flesh it out later. But um, you could have weak and strong versions of that, I imagine. Mm. Mm, yeah. Okay. Where else do you want to go in this chapter here? Um, so some talk about Heidegger here, but I think we already kind of addressed yeah. that. So he, he you know, moves on here. We've kind of been preempting it a bit to talk about uh, consciousness and um, the mystery of consciousness and stuff like that. And he says, um, I believe that the mystery of how thought or consciousness fits into the inanimate universe is an illusion generated by both a bad ontology and an even worse form of metaphysics. <laughs> so basically, again, I think the point is um, the only reason that this mystery of what how consciousness arises from physical inanimate matter arises because you have this binary between the subjective and the natural or whatever, right? Which mm. I think is maybe too strong of a claim. I think it's still pretty mysterious, <laughs> even if you um, have the right ontology or whatever. But uh, I get the point that the sort of what's called the hard problem of consciousness yeah. um, really only seems utterly uh, sort of mystical um, if you have this absolute binary that we're talking about or if I have already fallen into one of these traps, have that sort of Humean empiricist skepticism. 
as a sort of yeah. uh, presupposition. Yeah, so you've got like analytic philosophy of mind and David Chalmers and shit like that, but you've also got like Adrian Johnston, I feel like here, who literally wrote a whole book about Zizek's uh, transcendental materialism to try to answer the question from a Zizekian frame of how it is that consciousness could arise from uh, brute matter, right? So there's which obviously Johnston kind of straddles that divide between analytic and continental concerns too. But I feel like he's even kind of maybe could potentially be seen as kind of like lampooning both of those. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if that, that comes up later. Because I, I do think that if, if the claim is simply that there is no problem of consciousness when you follow Gabriel's approach, that seems like way too strong of a claim and just like, false on its face. <laughs> um, but the fact that we can say some true things about consciousness even if we don't have a solution to um, its origin, that seems to be true. And if that's what his claim ultimately is, then I think it's it's correct and he's on the right track there. Mm. Do you think he's making more of a type of epistemological claim in the sense that not that there isn't something outside of our scopes of schematization, but that it's not this big mystery? Because he does put scare quotes around mystery, right? And the reason I wonder is he says, because after he talks about how he thinks that this mystery is derives from bad ontology and a worse form of metaphysics, he says, in part, this book is written to undermine the impression that leads to the formulation of this mystery. So there's something about a precondition that leads to this mystery, which is the assumptions that we've been talking about, right? Like certain ontological metaphysical commitments. And then he says, so that we can gain a fresh look at the very nature of the domains we currently tend to analyze as illusions. So that's it. Is He still is looking at things, I think he calls a false thought, but rather he almost wants to substantialize them so that they're not just simply viewed outside of the scope of rationality, right? He wants to incorporate them within this maybe larger tendency towards uh, kind of reason um, connecting or corresponding to, if you will, the world. Yeah? Are maybe? you saying incorporate understanding of consciousness into rationality? What do you mean? What did I say? Um, you said <laughs> incorporating, incorporating it or them into rationality, but I wasn't sure what the antecedent was. Oh, fuck. I don't remember what I said. I was kind of just on one there. Um, well, let me try to recapitulate and tell me if I'm yeah. on the right track with you here. Uh, it seems to me like he's he's basically trying to say we do know some things about consciousness. Like I know what yellow looks like, right? I have a red lamp or a lampshade in front of me. I know what the redness of that lampshade looks like, right? Um, and I can like take that lamp, put it in a different room without me knowing. I could find it and say, oh, that's the same lamp or at least the same color lampshade, right? And I would know that. And I can know that without knowing how um, the origin of that consciousness was produced in the first place, or the neurobiological underpinnings or whatever that may be necessary conditions of my conscious experience, right? Whereas the 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 presupposition and analytic philosophy of mind kind of are the one that produces the really hard problem of consciousness, he might be saying, only comes about when you assume that, well, we don't know anything about consciousness until we know its origin or its sort of uh, neurobiological uh, uh, identity, right? Until we know um, the sort of uh, connection between a neuron firing and an experience of red, then we don't know what consciousness is at all. And I think he wants to say, no, 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 it's real. Consciousness is real. Subjective experience is real. We can analyze it. We can know things about it, even if we don't know everything about it. 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's partly true. I also think what I was getting at, I, I realized what I was referring to, the them or it was um, false thought was the it and illusions were the them. So I think he's trying, he's going to eventually try to like substantialize those things rather than them being viewed as some sort of like like mystery or kind of like mystification, but the, rather that his theory of, of false thought actually fits within the larger, let's say, schematic um, that he's ultimately going to be outlining about how it is that these domains of sense um, kind of create the the genitive conditions for thought, um, but that they're 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 integral to that, right? That there is a substantial sense in which we can understand illusions. So that's why they're that's why he says so we can gain a fresh look at the very nature of the domains that we currently tend to analyze as illusions, right? We tend to think of them now as being mystificatory, but that rather there's a sense in which there's actually substan something substantial about these things that we call illusions. And so therefore, they're not illusory. Yeah, so are you saying basically there's like, if we take Gabriel's approach and we have this sort of transcendental argument in place and understand the conditions for experience, that's what actually allows us to know the illusions from the objective representations in the first place um yeah i'm not sure that he'll make so strong of a transcendental argument at least not not um not ultimately i think he's going to use that to try to get outside of the correlationist circle so to speak um but yeah i do think that there is something about the determinant conditions that allow us to understand the genesis, right? Because there's a genitive account here that I think is so important. The genesis, if you will, of thought that includes what we generally think of as being illusory or mysterious or false thought or whatever. And he's going to actually kind of like figure out a way to help us to understand how it is that those things are actually just different kind of expressions of sense or just different um, orientations in the world, but that they aren't just simply like people just being mystified by ideology or something like that yeah so I, yeah a big part of the the book i think eventually is going to be this idea of the um the different fields of sense that are objective and real um but of course not sort of natural the common sense meaning of the term yeah 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 yeah. okay so he says and this is kind of i think um a way of uh giving an example of how he's construing subjectivity here he says, it seems that many people would rather believe that our brain is responsible for the ecological crisis or for the problems of industrialization still with us today than accept that these problems are really our problems. They're problems of fully responsible, morally autonomous agents who are essentially the outcome of large-scale socio-historical processes and ongoing political struggles. Our history begins where it emancipates itself from its biological conditions to the extent that what we do is not identical anymore to what happens to us. That's a pretty great last sentence, I think. Hmm. Um, and in the classic German tradition, right, of being like the kind of thing you could yell at a rally. Um, <laughs> so the point there I'm taking it is that he he wants to both say, uh, or he wants to say that the sort of um, the cash value of what he's saying here is that the sort of pessimism, the, the zoontological pessimism angle leads us to eventually say ecological crises, political problems, industrialization, stuff like this, inequality, they're just things that kind of happen to us. They're just trends that that happen outside of um, human agency and human choice, right? And so ultimately that sort of obscures responsibility for those things. It gets us out of responsibility because they happen to us. They didn't happen by us, right? So he wants to, to give some agency back to us. Mm. And he thinks that this sort of makes sense of that fact while also acknowledging 
uh, and not falling into the idea that it's, you know, there are only human agents that construct the world um, sitting at their dinner tables or something like that. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting where he says, our history begins where it emancipates itself from its biological conditions to the extent that what we do is not identical anymore to what happens to us. Okay, so the extent that what we do is not identical with what happens to us. So there's a theory here of rupture, I was thinking. Right? Mm-hmm. There's some sort of or event. emergence or something. Yeah, event. There's like an eventual gap. There's a break here between, because he's not denying that things happen to us and that there are, for example, like biological conditions. You know, um, that that is absolutely the case that, you know, you're born with, you know, certain biological um, tendencies and those things will have an impact that frame how you do things. But he says, but our history begins where we emancipate ourselves from that. To the extent that what we're doing, that what we do, is not identical to those conditions that impinge upon us. And so here there is, I think, the seeds of the political project that really kind of traces all the way back through the history of materialism that is kind of like you're free within conditions that are not of your own choosing or that you make Mm -hmm. history, um, you know, kind of not out of the whole cloth, which is Marx from the 18th Brumaire. But there's something there going on as well that I think he's tapping into. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I'm super interested in. That's obviously the point that uh, I would want to get to and see how this talk about ontology and metaphysics ultimately cashes out in in these normative questions. So uh, I'm glad that he's um, prefacing that here because it seems clear that he wants to to connect those dots, not just leave them up to the reader. Yeah, it's interesting here because he, he, he uses this uh, sentence, or he starts his next sentence, he says, in order to return to the subject, that is, in order to overcome a contemporary version of radical alienation or nihilism from subjectivity, it is important to give up the misguided idea that to exist is to be part of the universe, and to be part of the universe, essentially, is to be an inanimate chunk of extended stuff, which you oftentimes love to hear, even in like, sort of like, Instagrammy posts that's like, man, we're just stuff of stars and shit like that, you know, that they're trying to like sex it up, which um, I think is a, a sort of like new age fideism, right? That kind of derives. I, I never found that stuff sexy anyway, dude. Like, <laughs> I, I might be made of like shooting star materials, but so is like dog shit. So I still <laughs> yeah. don't like dog shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I love, I love it here because he's trying to bring the subject back. So I love this kind of back and forth that he's doing here, right? Um, Where he's saying, okay, we're still going to take seriously the biological conditions, but scientific naturalism is actually anti-human. It's anti-subjective because it doesn't really actually give any semblance of any kind of um, real value to the role of the subject. And this is where I'm so excited because I love theories of the subject. So this is where I think we're going to get a lot of interesting stuff like Bedu. We're going to engage with the role of subjectivity. But at the same time, it's not going to fetishize the subject in like the post-Cartesian sense that's all about the self and us as creating the world. And so then he's going to bring us back into the world of objectivity or the fields of sense. And so I really, I think it's going to do this really nice, I'm like topsy-turvy, like swirling back and forth between the two. Yeah, which is the best part about continental philosophy, right? I think I I had a professor who once said, um, who was an analytic philosopher, who said that continental philosophy, the ideas are too important for the language. 
or the writing or something Interesting. like that. Um, which uh, I don't know if I agree with, but I thought it was was cute in the sense that you know uh, I love that analytic. Flo- I mean, the continental philosophy has grand ambitions because why would you do this if you don't have the grand ambitions about unifying uh, ontology and subjectivity, right? Mm. Um, why would you care? I wouldn't. Mm. I think philosophy might be like puzzle solving for some people, where it's just like it's valuable in its own for its own sake, just because it lets your mind do things. Um, that's like exercise or something, right? So you feel better, so the endorphins are going. Um, but I guess that's that's some kind of value it could have, but I don't mm-hmm. think anybody would want to dedicate their life to it for that. I guess some people probably would, yeah. uh, but I wouldn't. Yeah, not me. Some people really get off from it, though. I think you have to be like that dude. What's the guy's name that kind of is infamous on Twitter for taking those really horrible positions and writing fully-fledged academic articles that get published? What's Oh, Kirshner or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is it Daniel? Daniel Kirshner or something like that? I thought it was Steven, but I could be wrong. <gasps> oh, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody fucking hates that guy, though. But he, <laughs> you can tell he loves it, though. Um, okay, so he does this. He's critiquing scientific naturalism here. Um, then he says, you know, it does not make sense to unify reality by identifying it with nature as governed by the laws of nature. I have a question mark next to this next sentence because I was wondering if you could help me here. He says... Our capacity to think about thinking simply does not follow the laws of nature, but the norm of truth and the laws of being true, hyphenated. What, what does that mean that thinking about thinking follows the norm of truth? Yeah, so I'm sure he'll unpack this later because I know he's going to talk about Frege um, and stuff like that from analytic philosophy of language. But this is a point that um, Frege kind of makes, you know, Davidson... Uh, makes this also, uh, although for different reasons. And I think what he's getting at is the basic idea that um, the laws of thought are not entailed by the laws of nature. So there's no sense in which um, sort of an inference, right? If A, then B, A, therefore B, right? A real basic logical inference, which is necessarily true, mm-hmm. does not follow from the laws of nature. Frege called uh, the assumption you could re- reduce the laws of like psychology to the laws of nature uh, uh, psychologism. Um, and so I, I wonder if he's going to get to that idea and basically be trying to say that there's nothing in the laws of nature by themselves, which entail, uh, the laws of psychology or the laws of thought. Oh, um, so, so again, there has there's, to be, yeah, there's a break. Um, there's some sort of almost qualitative difference. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think that's what he's getting to is the idea that you can't just reduce and explain the laws of thought and the norms of thought or the norms of being true, whatever he says, to simple biological laws. And that would be a sort of like direct contestation Which again to... is his sort of... Go ahead. No, go oh. ahead. Oh, no, that, that would be like a direct contestation to like, um, like philosophies of mind like Dennett, right? Who think that like human thought is just right. simply some sort of accumulative effect of material processes. Yeah? Right. Okay. Right. The basic idea would just be if if you could sort of reduce the laws of thought to the laws of nature, then the way most people think, which is not always logical, um, would be the laws of thought, <laughs> right? Mm. The sort of uh, quantifying of what what do people most often think? Do they most often think if a then then b a therefore b, or do they <laughs> affirm the consequence uh, or whatever? Right. Um, so his point is just no. Well then. If we're going to say in some, there's something true about the norm that if A, therefore, if A, then B, A, therefore B, 
um, that's a sort of uh, psychological norm or something, which is not reducible to the sort of pure uh, biological fact that brains don't often do that or don't always do that or something like that. Hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. So final page. So yeah, it's a Fregian point ultimately about psychologism. So we'll get back to that, I think, when we talk about Fregian more. Okay. Um, well, we're going a little long here. Do you want to wrap up this? Uh, we're on like basically the last page now anyway of the chapter. So is there something else you wanted to say here? Yeah, there's kind of one relatively long passage I wanted to read because I think it kind of uh, concludes the whole chapter and culminates okay. fairly well. He says... Zoontology is not identical with the human standpoint. It is not explicitly anthropomorphic because it largely contains interest-independent conditions and, therefore, interest-independent facts. Our interests are rooted in a domain of facts independent of our interests. This should not mislead us into believing that there are only interest-relative facts or only interest-independent facts, right? So, again, both are real, right? Subjectivity and, quote-unquote, nature without subjectivity. Hmm. Um, the first mistake culminates in Mayasu's correlationism, uh, that is roughly the view that we can only ever know how facts appear to us and never how they are in themselves, that we can only access the world through our conditions of assessing it and can never transcend these conditions. Right, so that's the first mistake. The second is um, the absolute conception of reality, according to which reality fundamentally consists of the facts that would have been the case had no one been around, so that our account of what it is to be around has to be given in accordance with the allegedly fairly negligible fact that we are around as conscious, intelligent beings. That is an awful sentence at the end there. Um, but the point, basically, he's saying is this calling the really real what would have existed if we hadn't been around to know it is an, like an incredible kind of special pleading. We are around. So we're part of the fabric of reality, as is our subjectivity, our conscious experience, and our knowledge. Right. So it has to be as real um, as what would have existed if we didn't exist. Mm. Yeah, and then he says both are extremely... So I take it that's the sort of conclusion so far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he says they're extreme and unmotivated mistakes, which is... There's some fucking polemics in here too, which is kind of funny, right? <laughs> um, then he says, quote, reality is neither generally of our own making... Nor is it generally the unobserved or even in principle unobservable, conceptually spooky in itself. Yeah. So reality isn't either of those. Yeah, exactly. I think that is kind of the, the button on this chapter. That's exactly what he's trying to say. Yeah. So that was 10 pages and we took over an hour to do that. Damn. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll be able to move a little quicker maybe otherwise, but yeah, yeah. It will be a little bit more uh, particular and uh, conservative in our choices about passages to deal with next time. <laughs> oh, I, I did want to say one thing. I highlighted this just because I like it. I highlighted it and I started because I think there's something interesting ethical about this as well. So correlationism, zoonological optimism, he says, is fascinated by the origins of life. But zoontological pessimism, scientific naturalism, is fascinated by its extinction. And I like that. Hmm. It's fascinated by life's extinction. And it, it's true. It seems that there's an enjoyment in a psychoanalytic sense of scientific naturalism for the extinction of life, that it wants to celebrate just this cold universe. And again, I'm thinking Brassier, and maybe this is where he 
uh, there's a footnote here. Maybe this is where he's talking about Brassier, but it is. It's almost when you read his text, it's he's there's an enjoyment I think in thinking this cold brute universe of just dark matter that is just tearing life and individuals and thought apart. You know, um, and I think you do get that with. Uh, other expressions of scientific naturalism as well, not just the brassy. I think you get it oddly, subtly, in somebody like a Neil deGrasse Tyson who wants to just think that physicalism is the answer to everything because it's actually ultimately an anti an anti-humanist position. As much as he wants to couch it up and be like, no, we just have to find our place in the stars and talk about like rationalia as some sort of weird utopic land or something like that where everyone thinks accordingly, but they're thinking accordingly according to the laws of nature, again, which means that humans are reduced in their individuality or uniqueness, and they just become nothing but expressions of that brute, cold, material world. While we're here in this short amount of time, we might as well make it as best as possible, blah, 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 shit like that. But there's ultimately like this real kind of, I think, anti-ethicism almost. It's like an anti-ethical position, and it's fundamentally insufficient to build any kind of social or political project on. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And the key is, I think, that even though it couches itself in this kind of anti-ethical stance, because these people are still acting and doing things and thinking of things as being good and worthwhile projects pursuing, they're still going to have um, all this stuff they're saying isn't real. They're still going to have like values. They're still going to have um, a sort of... Uh, internal ethical standpoint and perspective and position. They're just not going to say it. They're going to kind of just pretend that it's not there. But it's mm. still embedded in everything about rationalia um, is about sort of using science to help determine the proper way of living in a society. And then all it's smuggling and all the normative and ethical concerns while pretending it's all just scientific. So it's still going to have that stuff in there. You just got to like pick it out because it's hidden. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then... If we can criticize the other point, the zoontological optimism, that's the fetishization of self, the fetishization of human society, right? The fetishization that we are the knowers of the world and that we have our place. And I think that's what's that's going to be a really interesting thing as well, that you get this a lot, and then especially in political and ethical projects and social projects that really – uh, can be accused maybe of an anthropomorphism, but there is this sort of like fetishization, this enjoyment and this fetishization that I think ultimately is a type of like narcissistic detachment and separation from reality with a capital R. So it's going to be interesting if we can try to think about a social and political project that refuses both of those, right? That doesn't fall into either of those traps. That's what I think is going to be really fascinating. Yeah, I do wonder... Um, what the connection is going to be between the zoontological optimism and a, and a particular kind of political project. Like, what kind of political project does that lead to? Is it like a brute Marxism? Like the uh, G.A. Cohen's, um, what did he call that again? I can never remember the name of the obstetric, metaphor. The obstetric? The obstetric metaphor, yeah, yeah uh, of how history works. Um, so I wonder if there's some kind of connection there between a particular... Well, does it also lead to, like, identity politics, Right. Um, Gabriel criticizes or he engages with Quentin Meyasu's text for talking about like this anxiety that derives from Kant, right, from this separation between subject and object. And uh, Meyasu talks about how that leads to fideism. And Gabriel kind of engages with this, this 
argument about fideism from Mayasu. So there's something interesting about expressions of religion or expressions of identity even that could kind of be projections trying to cover over, right? That that really kind of like issue from radical subjectivity, that issue from like your own identity in your place that could be viewed as a sort of like serial fetishization of self and of your individual place, of your interest relative position in the world. So I think it could even be critical of like liberal bourgeois morality. Yeah? Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And you know what? I, I'm seeing here the boogeyman that I tend to always see is reductionism. Yeah. Right? One side has a sort of physical reductionism, right? Um, but this this sort of, you know, identity politics isn't necessarily wrong, right? There is there is a sort of, there are facts about identity. That's certainly going to be a point that Gabriel makes as well when it comes to subjectivity, right? The point is if it's reductive, if everything is reduced to um, subjectivity or in the political sphere to one's uh, identity or to their sort of standpoint epistemology is yeah. the sort of exhaustive of all knowledge or some kind of claim like that or even just a function like that, that's going to be the issue or so even again, reductionism is the problem even insofar as you think from standpoint epistemological position that you're the foundational part of your epistemology yeah 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 and and insofar as you think from that um to whatever degree like greater or lesser that might um intensify or minimize the sense in which you fall into this zoonological trap right and um, and then I think vice versa, right? Insofar as you think from this zoonological pessimistic position where the world is just a, a, a brute matter of facts outside that is indifferent to uh, subjectivity whatsoever, insofar as you think from that perspective, that contaminates a certain kind of proper orientation in into the world that he will then kind of like flesh out as like this third alternative. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm glad you made that point about Mayasu's um, critique of you know contemporary fideism because that seems exactly connected to what Gabriel's talking about here. See, this is where I think the project is. I'm so excited. I want to, I like, I really want to test the limits of what this can do so, socially and politically and like social theory, political theory. Um, I, I'm really excited to see it because I'm, I'm seeing all these connections and I'm just wondering how, uh, how it's going to be able to kind of like flesh those things out. Put maybe, rather than put meat on the bones, he's going to put like the bone on the meat, in the meat. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whoops, that's very sexual. <laughs> <laughs> Can we call this episode the bone in the meat? Putting the bone in the meat. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like he's he's gonna provide the yeah. skeletal the skeletal framework. Yeah. Yeah, and the meat's and the meat's the, the normativity, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I follow you. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Well let's go ahead and wrap that up there and we'll jump into the sticky leaves. Yeah, yeah. All right, it is time for the final segment of the episode. This is going to let us down now. Let our minds digest. Let our bellies sort of consume the meat that has just been eaten off of the bones that Gabrielle is uh, putting into our meat. I don't know. The metaphor fell apart now because now I'm trying to think (laughs) sexually, but we're also eating the meat. I don't know what's going on. Um, But anyway, this is the sticky leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is bringing us joy in a world that is potentially this dark, cold, brute, material universe where there is no meaning, or maybe it's not that way, but who knows? Either way, we're going to talk about something happy. So, Troy, what's giving you meaning? So, a few weeks ago, I watched a movie called One Cut of the Dead. Have you heard of it? No, I've never even heard of it. 
It's a Japanese film that came out, at least it came out in the States last year. Um, it was made for $25,000 by some, I think, unknown filmmakers. Or maybe, maybe in Japan, they're a little bit more well-known. Um, but $25,000 to make this film. And I think it broke a record because it grossed, um, let's see, $28 million in Japan and $30 million worldwide. Okay. So it earned over a thousand times its budget, which is some sort of record. Um, and it's run a bunch of awards at various film festivals and stuff. The film, it's almost impossible to describe because I also don't want to give away anything since there's a number of twists. But it's about a filmmaker who wants to make a zombie movie in Japan. And they use an old warehouse to make the zombie movie. Hmm. But then an actual zombie outbreak happens in the midst of their filming a zombie movie. <laughs> and the director says, just go with it. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. But then that's not even, that's like one of the twists. There's like three more iterations of twists beyond this. It gets really meta. <laughs> and it is, it's so creative and joyful and fun. Um, it's just, you know, zombie movies a lot of times are you know, like they're like Cormac McCarthy's The Road or The Walking Dead or whatever, right? right? And they're somber and gross and nasty. And um, they're supposed to be like the Hobbesian view of life, right? Nasty, brutish, and short. And there's a point to those things, right? Um, this one gets to the comical, absurdist heart of what I love about zombie films and post-apocalyptic films. And also, it's just, it's a, it's a filmmaker or filmmakers engaged in absolute joy because you can tell they are having so much fun making this movie and how ridiculous and creative and amazing that it is. Um, I have thought about this movie probably every day since I've watched it because of how fun it was and how many twists and turns and how it felt like it was 15 minutes long, even though it's like an hour and a half or whatever. Hmm. Um, It's a fantastic movie. I think absolutely anybody who loves movies of any kind will enjoy this since it is so fun. Where did you see it? Uh, I just, I had got it at home. It, okay. it did go to theaters like, and I remember. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it did go into theaters last year for a few weeks and it was actually playing in my in my town here and I wanted to go see it because I had heard a lot of buzz about it, but I just wasn't able to for whatever reason and I really wish I had because it seems like the kind of movie that would be so fun to watch with a bunch of people. Um, although here, maybe there would have been five people in the theater. Back in LA, it probably would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> um but it's it's glorious. I, I guarantee that. You, I mean, I don't want to build it up too much because then it's going to be a letdown. Right. Um, but I think you'll especially love it, given some of the the cinematic and narratological tricks that happen in this film. Oh, cool. Yeah. I do wonder. I, I think I've told you this anecdote, and I think it's kind of humorous, but also there's something substantial in this. But a buddy of mine, John, once told me he was like, you know, we oftentimes think that like the apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic landscape is like the road or Walking Dead or, you know, the Mad Max and exactly like you said, everyone's reduced to the state of nature in the Hobbesian sense, fighting over limited resources and shit like that. And uh, he's like, but actually, we actually have an historical example of a post-apocalyptic world. He's like, it's fucking Japan, bro. He's like, two nuclear bombs were <laughs> dropped on it. He's like, look at Japan now, where like everyone dresses up like little schoolgirls, and you've got hentai porn, and you've got fucking restaurants where you can go eat ass, and you've got naked sushi restaurants, and people are plugged into these pods where they work like 16, 18 hours a day, uh, or they, they work like, uh, yeah, 16, 18 hours a day, and then they just sleep in these tiny little like standing coffins, basically, and then they go back to work. He's like, look 
look at how how kind of interesting Japan is. Look at fucking anime and like battle royale, and you know, think about the Lost Generation and stuff like that. He's like, that's fucking Japan, bro. That's a post-apocalyptic world. He's like, we have actual resources for looking at it, and it isn't this like. I don't know, like everything is reduced to the desert and everyone has gone back to the Wild West. He's like, that's not it at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will say, as much as I, it, it is a zombie film, it's also a film about making films. Mm. It's about the love of creation, ultimately, I think, and the sort of joy and absurdity of what you'll go through to create something. Um, so I, as a filmmaker yourself, I think you would appreciate that. I sort of can't necessarily grasp that aspect of it, even though I can appreciate it from an objective standpoint. Uh, so I am curious. I'm sort of goading you by making this my sticky leaves to watch it so I can ask you what you thought about that feature of the film since I'm curious about it. All right, deal. Yeah, I wonder too if there's something about like, because it's taking place in the midst of an actual zombie apocalypse, if there's something about like making film at the end of the world, like like if that is something that comes up. Is that a theme that you could kind of take from it like that there's some sort of like joyous artistic creation because we're always at the precipice of apocalypse i mean i'm literally just speculating and bullshitting but yeah i mean j- just the absurdity of creating things that are not gonna live right <laughs> that are ephemeral <laughs> yeah there's, there's certain something there and it's not in like the buddhist like tranquil sense of like you know the sand mandala is you know gonna flow into the river or whatever right um, i'm sure there's some element there of it right but it's also it comes across in a sort of joyous absurdity yeah in the absurdity yeah, there's something, uh, there's a great word, I, I don't know if it's elsewhere, I've only ever seen it used in Stiegler's work, he talks about negentropy, um, which is like the negation of entropy, and uh, it feels like there's something negentropic, if you will, about film, or just making art, or making anything, writing a philosophical treatise, making a fucking podcast, like, there's something negentropic about it, right? It's like vitality warring against the uh inevitable breakdown of this body that's being eaten by fucking deteriorating cells and shit like that you know yeah i like that it's sort of you know we're gonna take the chaos of the world and we're gonna try to make a movie out of it yeah 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 exactly all right i was just wondering so it's like you couldn't like stream this on netflix or anything like that you have to use alternative means um i did i don't know if it's available now I'll look it up really quick. Okay. Probably should have found that out in the first place. So you can rent it from like Amazon Prime and Google Play and and stuff. Oh, cool. But I don't think it's free streaming anywhere. Yeah, not yet. So okay. You got to rent it. All right. But if you got or a couple bucks, it's worth a couple bucks to uh, throw it at independent cinema, especially in a time Absolutely. like especially in a time like this, man. Fucking. the world of film is dying like what's gonna fucking happen bro I mean even a film like Tenet like do do they really think that it's gonna make money like what the fuck how do you make how I mean they're not they're not gonna release it in July right at this point they're gonna push it back I have to imagine dude they're still saying they're gonna I guess maybe they're just being optimistic but I mean he blew up at a a Boeing 747 didn't he (laughs) I think I think Christopher Nolan I think that's right I read that he blew up an entire because it was he said it was it was more efficient to blow up the actual one than to make it out of CGI, <laughs> which is the most Christopher Nolan quote you can imagine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, you know what's crazy? Is there another <laughs> filmmaker who has the license to just do crazy shit? I mean, obviously, he's got no the money. Way. But, like, Warner is just like, <laughs> we will cut you a blank check. Just keep doing what you're doing, bro. Dude, you know how, like, doing that star pose naked in the morning to the sunrise <laughs> thing makes you feel like Superman? Yeah. 
that's what Christopher Nolan feels like when he walks into a Warner Brothers like exec room. And it's just like, he probably just came up with the idea and they're like, hey, hey, what do you want to do for your next film? He's like, I don't know. He saw like a model plane on the side of the building was like, I'll blow up a Boeing 747. You know, it's just bullshitting. And they're like, okay. Yeah, he's yeah. just like, yeah, that's that's me. I'm back. I can, I can get anything I want. Yeah. How much money do you need? You know, I probably need $300 million to make a really obscure film about delving into the recesses of people's consciousness. What do you think? You're going to do this? And it's going to have some, like, elements of, like, time relativity. Like, I think this is really going to be a thing. Sure, here you go. $300 million. Go make Inception. What the fuck? Yeah. He basically just said, I need $300 million. I'm going to cast someone no one's ever heard of. He's going to be a person of color. I'm going to blow up a plane. And no one's going to understand this film because it's backwards. <laughs> yeah. And you have to I'm trust me like, because sure, man. look at look at what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jesus, like, uh, I know, I know, it's crazy, I know, well, exciting, exciting times, yeah, man, I will, uh, I'll definitely check it out, I, um, I have to watch, actually, for the Wisecrack podcast, by the time this episode is out, I will have already recorded it, and it may have been released, but the, gotta watch Judd Apatow's The King of Staten Island, starring, uh, Pete Davidson. Oh, is that coming out, is that already out? No, no, we have a, an advanced screener. But ah. that's that will be my viewing for um, tonight, actually. So I'm kind of excited to watch that. But after I get that done, then I will delve into this other one. I was I'm excited about that movie too. Did you see the other movie Pete Davidson was in recently? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Where he's uh, uh what is it called? He's like an older friend figure to a young teenager, but he's a burnout as he always is. Big Time Adolescence, that's what it's called. Did you see that? Big Time Adolescence. No, no, I don't even think I know about it. It was good. It was a cute little kind of uh, comedy in the same vein as uh, I'm sure King of Staten Island will be. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is the cover looks kind of silly, right? But um, one, it's a Judd Apatow film, so I've got to kind of trust that it's in the hands of a filmmaker who you know does pretty good, but also there is something about Pete Davidson that I think a lot of pe- I don't know if a lot of people give him credit for it. He has a charm about him. He really does. I mean, obviously it makes sense because you know he's yeah. able to attract like you know these these uh, these kind of high profile celebrity women that he can date and shit like that. But there's something kind of I don't know if it's because he's self-effacing or whatever it is, but there's kind of like a I'm sure there's a a hubris that you have to have some level of that, like a some level of a narcissism to be a narcissist to kind of be in the industry, right? But at the same time, he almost has like this this like charming, self-effacing, like self-awareness that I think is really appealing. So I, I don't know, I kind of just enjoy him, right? Like when he goes and does Weekend Update, and he kind of just like talks shit about how like Lorne never casts him in any of his sketches, and he always gets rejected, and how he's <laughs> dealing with depression and shit like that. Like I kind of find it really charming. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know how sometimes you can you can sort of theorize the difference between a douchebag and an asshole, and that the douchebag's not aware of the <laughs> douchebaggery, yeah. whereas the asshole is aware and doesn't give a shit um, about you know being an evil person or being bad or whatever. Yeah. He's like the douchebag who's just like cresting on self-awareness but he's like he stays on the crest that's that's rather than perfect. going full either towards it or or back into um sort of ignorance he's always cresting and you and you appreciate the wreck that's like maturity happens there yeah when the douchebag becomes self-aware and then changes but he's always not really ever 
getting to full self-awareness, just like cresting it. And then this is this is just my totally speculative theory. I think that's what King of Staten Island is going to be about because I think the douchebaggery isn't like a personal moral failing, but rather it's like a structural condition from his upbringing as being a dude from Staten Island, you know? Yeah, where douchebags are born, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the bros of Simi Valley or whatever it was called. It's kind of like there's like a structural set of conditions here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm excited about this movie now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have no idea, but yeah, that's it. Well, cool, man. That'll be sick. I uh, I will definitely I'll go to Amazon Prime and I'll I'll rent it and check it out. Yeah, again, yeah, One Cut of the Dead is the English name. One Cut of the Dead. Sweet. All right, man. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, as Troy said at the outset, if you want to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There's a link below that you can click, click as well. Um, you can hit us up on Insta, on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Patrons, make sure to go vote in the poll for the new patron led parliamentary democracy motherfuckers whatever it's called thing that we're doing so you can choose which topic we are going to talk about in an upcoming episode here um i think that's it unless there's anything else that i forgot to say just one more thing i can think of dude what's that das vadani americanski yeah, yeah.